You are about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. Guadalcanal, Solomon Islands, August 1942. As the war raged on elsewhere, one of the most horrible theaters of the Second World War was becoming more and more blood-soaked with each passing day. The Pacific, with its many tiny, remote, yet strategically significant islands, was the absolute focus of Imperial Japan. Controlling these islands was of utmost importance. But as the Allies advanced, Japanese forces found themselves embedding deeper and deeper into the jungles of, in the case of our story today, the humid, dense, and unforgiving terrain of the Solomon Islands, much further than the locals would ever care to go. However, as they hacked themselves into the endless sea of green jungle, the horrors of guerrilla warfare would become secondary to another series of inexplicable attacks that they would endure. Crashing through the brush, attacking their camps and ripping apart soldiers, were massive 10 to 15 foot tall giants who were said to fill the darkness with horrifying shrieking wails as they stalked the Japanese at night. What exactly these giants were is a matter of speculation, and ties into ancient beliefs of strange entities said to reside within the islands. Welcome to part two of our monstrous military encounters series, as we venture to the Solomon Islands in search of giants. Welcome back into the portal, your gateway to the bazaar. Yes, indeed. Welcome <laughs> back, everyone, for part two of our series on military encounters with monsters. Yeah, part two, take two. Part part two, <laughs> take two. That's right. Do you want to explain that a well, little bit for the listeners? Because it's interesting. It, it, it's kind of funny, I guess. Uh, so we've been doing this podcast for three years, and I just happened to forget how to record audio. And so we had Andrew sounding like he was coming out of the tube. Yes. And I was perfectly crisp, and it yes. was because we weren't even using the mics. <laughs> yep. We were recording through the good old-fashioned laptop speakers. I can't even believe I did and, that. Uh, that's, so uh... <laughs> basically, yeah, redo, which means it's going to be even better for all you yes. listening. Yes, it's going to be better. And also, that's just everyone take that as like, you know, we like we have been doing this for three years, and that's like one of the most basic things. So it's okay to screw up. It's everyone, okay. Every, it, 
these things these things happen. This is what I'm telling myself right now because it's entirely my fault. So. Yes. <laughs> Anyways, it no. happens, okay? <laughs> but we are excited to be back here for part two in this military encounters series because uh, part one, I feel like uh, it got some some nice feedback. People mm-hmm. enjoyed that. If you haven't listened to part one, go ahead and do that, although it isn't necessary for part two because we are going to a completely different part of the world today. Totally different. And I think I intentionally misled a few people in our Facebook group by saying we were going underground. Ooh. I think people thought we were going to the hollow earth, but <laughs> not so much for this episode. I least, love that but... you gave them that teaser though. Let them run wild with going down rabbit <laughs> yeah. holes right and there actually is yeah a little little uh, tidbit of that uh, involved in this as well mm-hmm. but yeah no i'm really really excited for this one it's a story that we hadn't we had no idea that this existed until relatively recently uh, i do want to give a shout out to the kryptonaut boys over on the kryptonaut podcast because they covered this on their show and also had the same guest on they did an amazing job of it so you can check it out on their uh, on their show as well but today we are going to the pacific specifically to the relatively remote and small Solomon Islands located in Oceania, where there are stories that have surfaced since the years of the war in the Pacific that are indeed both extremely strange. And then for me, when I close my eyes and I picture myself in the dense jungle canopy of the Solomon Islands, it's absolutely terrifying to picture what happens in these accounts. So what we have here are stories from Japanese forces that basically indicate that Perhaps they had a little bit more to deal with in the jungle besides the harsh terrain and allied forces attacking them in the brush. The rainforests of these islands are extremely dense. They're, it's dense, it's humid, it's hot. And they're so thick that the indigenous islanders, they no longer even attempt to live in the interiors. There's no point to it. Um, we're going to talk about that a little bit more with Nick as well. It's extremely difficult to... Tra- to traverse, as I've said, but these soldiers were, in some ways, the Japanese forces, used to this type of Pacific Island terrain. They were stationed across a ton of different islands in the Pacific, and it ended up being the modus operandi to embed themselves as deep as possible and use tactics of guerrilla warfare. Mm -hmm. What they were not used to, however, were the monstrous-sized entities that they encountered in the interior of the islands. So... According to, admittedly, a small number of sources, Japanese soldiers often reported inexplicably running into giant hairy hominids, ranging from 10 feet tall on average, and according to some other sources, as even massive as 15 feet in height, way bigger than the typical Sasquatch or other bipedal human-like creature that we're used to on the show. Absolutely monstrous. And on the note of Sasquatch, just because that's where my brain is right now. Mm -hmm. These Guadalcanal giants, as they've become known as, were said to be covered in long, dark brown to reddish brown hair. And they've been reported to have prominent brows or double brows, I'm air quoting here, as reported in uh, the wonderfully written article by Nicholas Cox, who's going to talk to us in a little bit here. Flat noses and wide mouths like that of our, our ancestors, essentially, like ancient relic hominids in their facial construction. But unlike the Sasquatch, these giants were also reported to wield massive weapons of, like, enormous stone weapons. Mm. So that's strange. But, I mean, what do you have to think about? What do you have to say about that before we continue? That's an interesting part about this is the idea of, like, they're almost like Stone Age weapons. Yeah. And whether or not the size is gigantic or gargantuan, as some people report, that's still pretty interesting to think that these are found in the reported 
habitat of these giants that dwell on Guadalcanal. I actually thought that was weird, the double brow. Like, what did you make of that? It's almost like pug-like features or like a sharpay <laughs> or like what's going on? It reminds, that? it just makes me think of like classic like old world drawings of early Neanderthal or something True. where it's got like the double fold thing going yeah. on and, 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 and you know, the facial structure is sticking out a little more prominently with the, the fate, the actual mouth and nose. Mm-hmm. And you think of relic relic humans hiding in caves mm-hmm. but is it that i mean that's only one angle that we're going to talk about today exactly yeah before we even speculate on any of these things or what these things could be there's just so much more to tell so continuing on here the japanese had already been occupying these locations across the solomon islands at major points and across the pacific in general and had begun construction of naval bases air bases and their goal was protecting the flank of the japanese offensive in new guinea specifically in this area of the pacific and the japanese soldiers were as i said before highly skilled and trained despite some of the units at the battle of guadalcanal and elsewhere being made up of inexperienced young men but they were still as we know from like even the idea of kamikazes like the dedication Mm -hmm. involved in the in the japanese effort in the second world war was intense i won't call it brainwashing but it was something similar to that where it was like yeah like the imperial nature of their military was totalitarian yes and you you saw that in the performance and the dedication of their soldiers we came across a story just recently we talked about it today about the the guy who was still around fighting into this 1970s yeah. in the Philippines he thought, thought the he was still, was still doing his thing right <laughs> anyway never give up never surrender right that was that was yeah that was the mantra right um but essentially these young men you know they they were left to the perils of the jungle and the warfare and the advancing allied troops with flamethrowers and a lot of other insane things and now allegedly dealing with massive giant hairy hominids coming from the interior of the islands as well not exactly ideal Mm -hmm. so several of these special units described direct encounters with these terrifying entities and i'm going to call them that for now because we don't know what they are or where they're coming from They described them as crashing through the dense foliage to attack and ravage squads of soldiers. And the alternative to this was if they didn't attack was pure territorial or behavioral that behavior that was like intimidation is how it sounds. They were described as snapping or ripping apart trees and displaying other threatening, you know, displays of power, um, stalking the camps at night, letting out shrieking howls that were guttural and terrifying. What's even more terrifying, however, is they didn't didn't seem to have uh, much they could do against them. They didn't seem to uh, be able to kill these things. Yeah, what's more terrifying than something that won't die? And as the reports go, uh, of course, when these soldiers encountered these terrifying entities, as we'll call them, they began to open fire, right? What's the one thing you got on you at all times during war? Your gun. Yes. So, of course, uh, th- that was their only defense. And... They didn't seem to have much effect. The bullets, whether or not they actually made their target or not, uh, they seemingly did not kill these creatures. Right. So exactly that. Can you just imagine the amount of fear that you would have? First of all, you're thousands of miles away or hundreds of miles away, I guess, because we're talking the Pacific here. These soldiers, right? These yes. Japanese men that were at the station there just... The idea alone that you are kept awake during the day by the battles and, and the constant barrage from the allied forces, mm-hmm. and then by night you can't sleep because you're hearing these 
voluminous rumblings. And we actually had this really cool quote um, from the article written by Nicholas Cox, who we will talk to in just a second here. He's actually an archaeologist who excavated World War II sites on the Solomon Islands. So yes. he had boots on the ground, so to speak. And uh, of course, his article was the inspiration for this episode. Mm -hmm. And this quote in particular speaks to the level of fear these young men experienced. <clears throat> so, quote, Young soldiers, far away from home, and already in a state of heightened stress and anxiety, with Lockheed P-38 lightning screaming overhead, and flamethrower-wielding U.S. Marines pushing them ever deeper into the jungle, were now unable to sleep at night due to the inhuman howls and wails that reverberated off the trees coupled with the crash and thrash of these primordial behemoths moving through the undergrowth close to the Japanese positions. Yeah. End quote. That was from Cox there. So that speaks to <clears throat> the nature of what it was like to be on Guadalcanal Island during World War II. Yeah. And it's, it's attacked from the outside and attacked from the inside. What's interesting is obviously we're dealing with... Um, specifically in, in uh, Guadalcanal was the centerpiece of fighting um, in the Solomons. But there's stories of these creatures across across the islands. And there's, there's, a, there's a series of main islands, four I believe it was, and then hundreds of others. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of islands that make up the Solomons. And this, these legends and these stories that the locals believe to be very real spreads across all of them. Exactly. Because like we've referred to, uh, this was actually presented to the world the outside world for the first time post-World War II. However, these giants have a long history on the islands. So let's get into some of that. Before we do, we have a quick promo break for our fellow Straight Up Strange show, and it's from Straight Up Enigma. So let's hear what she has to say. Mm -hmm. Ted Bundy murdered my dad's friend's sister in 1974 while on his reign of terror in Utah. At least, Bundy admitted to killing her just before his execution, but police were never able to locate her body. That's the topic of just one episode on Straight Up Enigmas, a podcast to explore the unexplained. Spine-tingling supernatural stories, historical mysteries, and true criminal cases are all things to expect when you tune in to our show. We discuss the mysterious deaths of the Jameson family, share terrifying true stories from real people about sleep paralysis, and explore Cleopatra's missing tomb. I'm Jaden McKell, and I'm the host of Straight Up Enigmas. Our bite-sized bi-weekly episodes focus on the world's strangest mysteries, sacred and sonic geometry, the murder of Karen Silkwood, Turkmenistan's door to hell, the curse of the omen, and much more. Listen and subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find podcasts. And we're back. So yeah, go make sure you check out that Straight Up Enigma. She's got some great content. Hell yeah. Just keeps it rolling constantly. So it's so, awesome. Really fun show. She cranks really. it out. It's great. Yeah. Okay. So let's get into some of the history, some of the geography of the Solomons, because I think that's kind of important just to lay the groundwork here. So, Andrew, you alluded to, yeah, there's there's multiple islands, right? So there's actually six major uh, yes, islands. Six, right. Okay. And within that, there's over 900 smaller islands. And this all is in the, the region of Oceania, yes. if you want to call it that. So, of course, we're talking, this is eastward of Papua New Guinea. Yes. 
approximately overall all of these islands accompany or encompass I should say <laughs> 11,000 square miles and they do have a population of just over 650,000 650, people thank Small. you Andrew. that's such a tiny little pop I mean it's obviously they're tiny islands they so. are tiny islands yes and the main island is Guadalcanal and that's where the capital resides too yes so basically we're looking at an area of approximately 2,000 square miles. Mm-hmm. It's not a lot of land. Uh, right. It does have Mont Popo Mansanu, which I probably mispronounced there, but that is actually like, it's kind of like a cone like island, I guess you could say. Not a cone, because it's not like a cinder volcano on like another island that's like right beside there. Right, right. But it is basically um characterized by this elevation this peak it's almost right. like it reminds me of like a diamond like coming up like you know like um, totally a 3d kind of a thing there's a lot of vertical all. space on these islands exactly like, it's a lot of small, ups and downs yeah mm-hmm. so there's a lot of crevices there's a lot of valleys nooks and crannies crazy limestone you know uh, cliff faces and caverns and all kinds of stuff exactly it's, but yet they're extremely small so obviously by comparison to what we're used to on the show Sasquatch hiding into the massive hiding in the massive expanses of the Pacific Northwest. This is a little bit different, right? Than that. Yeah, exactly. So some people it adds to the skeptical nature of this, but for me, there's a lot of reasons that kind of eliminate that skepticism. Right. And when we get into the chatting with Nick, there it's a it's it's a oh, wild yes. trip. Oh yes. <laughs> so of course these islands have a long pre-European history, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of people characterize history as beginning when the Europeans arrived, and of course that's just a Eurocentric way of thinking. But of course the Solomons were initially settled well before the archaeological record even begins. Like you'll see conservative estimates. Like when we talked to Nick there, he was going way further back than what some sources you'll see on like encyclopedias and stuff like that but of course one of the oldest areas where people have migrated out from right the europeans didn't arrive until the 1500s so we're talking 1568 and it was a man by the name of alvaro de mendana de nira mm-hmm. <laughs> he's of this and of that <laughs> but he was the first of the europeans to arrive on the islands and of course that's where the name is derived from so it's actually from unverified rumors that stemmed from this initial visit that gold had been found by Nira and his team on the islands. Not just any gold, though. Mm. It was supposedly the gold of infamous King Solomon. Yes. And it was used to build the Temple of Jerusalem, so some will say. That is... Or so the legend went. That's pretty awesome. Exactly, yeah. But you know what's even more interesting is after Nira departed... The Solomons were actually more so a fable than anything else for hundreds of years after. And it was sought after by many Spanish explorers, but never found again. Right. Not until literally the late 1800s. And that was when it was actually charted again by uh, English and French cartographers. Crazy. I know. Isn't that interesting? From there, it was kind of a classic colonial story. The inhabitants of the islands were fully exploited by European colonizers for labor. And most of this occurred in the Fiji plantations. And it was only well after the end of World War II that these Solomon Islanders would again gain independence. And uh, they shed their identity as a British protectorate. But of course, now they're more so under the uh, the helm of the Australians. And for good reason, too, for yeah. disaster relief and all sorts of sure. good things. But 
again, right? They are kind of a little brother. It, it's interesting though, like, you know, even now, you know, post post full colonial colonialism and now um, as an independent state, but still, like you said, like as a kind of a, a, the little brother, so to speak, in the Pacific under Australia, very much like Fiji, which is a place I've been to, which actually ties into this as well, because there's stories of giants across all kinds of Pacific islands and is not just the Solomons. It's a bit of a ubiquitous legend that I feel like must tie back to something. And I find that I find that to be a tidbit that's really interesting that we can come back to. So yeah, for the exist for, for the locals, the existence of these giants, these creatures, is not really just myth or legend. It's a well-established fact, even now post, you know, the old days, the old headhunting days, um, so <laughs> yeah. to speak, right? Which is something we get into with Nick, which is really interesting as well. But I mean, let's talk a little bit about the Battle of Guadalcanal before we get into our, our interview with Nick. Of course, yes, because this is kind of the linchpin of the episode, correct? Because we had these uh, these supposed encounters, and we're going to get into the sources and all that with Nick, which is very interesting. But, of course, the Battle of Guadalcanal is one of those ones that is not in the forefront of people's memory when they think of World War II, even though it was one of the crucial battle arenas in the Pacific mm-hmm. during this time. The Battle of Guadalcanal was a series of clashes that took place between August 1942 and February of 1943, so mm-hmm. approximately a six-month campaign, and this was fought between the Allied forces and the Japanese, who were seeking expansion of their imperial interests in the Pacific, like you already mentioned, Andrew. Mm-hmm. Uh, So basically, the Japanese had been occupying this protectorate, the Solomons, since the beginning of the war when they entered. And it was uh, it was the allied forces that were coming to, quote unquote, liberate these islands. So they were actually um, befriended by the locals and they were aided quite a bit just to get these Japanese to leave because Mm -hmm. the local islanders believed in the principles of liberty and freedom and all that stuff that uh, America was known for at the time and supposedly still is but (laughs) I digress (laughs) I digress but it was during this time obviously that the first inklings of the giants of Guadalcanal would be revealed to the outside world and this is where our friend Nicholas Cox comes in. Absolutely. So perfect segue. Let's get into our interview with Nicholas Cox. Nick is an archaeologist, graduate from Cambridge University. He's currently residing in Bavaria, working on various archaeological sites. But as we mentioned already before, more importantly for this episode, Nick has organized and led an expedition to the Solomon Islands in order to investigate and excavate World War II sites, where, of course, he got pretty close, so to speak, to the legends of these giants like Amber alluded to. So without further ado, let's get into our, get into our chat with Nick. All right, so today on the show, we are joined by a very, very special guest, none other than archeologist Nicholas Cox. Welcome to the show, buddy, how's it going? Okay, fantastically. Thank you oh, so man, no, much thank for having you for being me on, on the show. It's you a know, pleasure to have you. Seriously, like ever since we listened to the episode that you were on with the Kryptonaut Boys, definitely got us jazzed up about this case, if you will, and uh, it is it was something that we had never mm-hmm. been exposed to. But obviously, you have so much to talk about in regards to the Solomons and in regards to these these strange, strange entities we want to get into. But we wanted to start things off uh, with a little bit of your time on the islands, right, Amber? Yeah, exactly. Like, let's just start with the basics, I guess. Um, Even before we get to the islands here, I'm just curious, Nick, uh, how you were originally turned on to this story. Like, what about this legend drew you in? All right. So today on the show, we are joined by a very, very special guest, none other than archaeologist Nicholas Cox. Welcome to the show, buddy. How's it going? Going fantastically. Thank you so much for having me on today. Oh man, no, thank you for being on the show. It's uh, you a know, pleasure to have you. Seriously, like ever since we 
listened to the episode that you were on with the Kryptonaut boys. Definitely got us jazzed up about this case, if you will. And uh, mm-hmm. it, is, it was something that we had never been exposed to. But obviously, you have so much to talk about in regards to the Solomons and in regards to these, these strange, strange entities we want to get into. But we wanted to start things off uh, with a little bit of your time on the islands. Right, Amber? Yeah, exactly. Like, let's just start with the basics, I guess. Um, even before we get to the islands here, I'm just curious, Nick, uh, how you were originally turned on to this story. Like, what about this legend drew you in? So how I got involved in this whole thing, it, it's pretty convoluted, but um, in the summer of 2019, I was taking some family friends on a tour around um, Cambridge, which is where I'd studied my archaeology degree. And being an archaeologist and a big nerd, I spent my entire time raving about archaeology to them. And when we sat down for lunch, I was explaining how archaeology can actually be be anything from, you know, deep prehistory. It has to be human to be archaeology, but from, you know, the earliest humans uh, through till 30, 20 years ago, if it's put in the ground by a human, it can constitute archaeology. And this family friend of mine mentioned that he had worked in the Solomon Islands in 1995 on a forestry initiative. And he had been the first non-Solomon Islander to be taken to see a series of Japanese wartime tunnels in an, on an island called Columbangara. And this sort of got me thinking. And the more I talked to him, and the more I looked into it, I realized that there was this entire Japanese fortification from the Second World War on the island of Columbangara, which had never ever been explored, surveyed or seen except by local landowners who had not explored all aspects of these ruins. But as I was researching, because eventually I would lead an expedition to the island to formally photograph, survey and explore this uh, Second World War relic. But in the preliminary research I put into this particular time, place, and period, as I prepared to go on my expedition, I stumbled across accounts, and this is what we're talking about today, I think a little bit more. I stumbled across accounts of Japanese soldiers who had encountered some really mysterious entities that were not local Solomon Islanders and were not uh, allied forces forcing them off the Solomon Islands during the Second World War. And this struck me as a very interesting little story. And while I was out on the islands undertaking this archaeological expedition, searching for and um, entering these Japanese wartime tunnels, which was incredibly exciting in its own right, I kept asking locals if they've ever heard or seen anything about giants, giant, hairy hominids, anything, anything like that, because that's how the story goes. Um, and it became a bit of a running joke with my team, my search for ape, ape men. <laughs> But uh, would you like to introduce this topic or do you want me to? Well, yeah, let's. OK, so we, we've we've talked a little bit about it already, mm-hmm. but essentially what essentially what we're dealing with here are not what we're used to on the show. And that's what's most interesting to us about these creatures on the Solomons, because obviously we're from British Columbia and we've covered extensively Sasquatch and other hominids of North America. So this was obviously extremely different because they are described as much, much bigger in some cases, 10 to 15 feet tall. These giants that are coming from the inner mountainous ranges of these tiny, tiny little islands, which is which is one of the most bizarre aspects of this. So, I mean, we can totally I want to leave this to you, Nick, because you've you've written <coughs> written extensively on it. But, I mean, 
let, let's hear what you have to say about the Giants. I mean, you, you went there, you talked to the locals. Some of the questions I have after this are about local perceptions Fantastic. of things throughout history. But, I mean, let's, let's, uh, let's hear your perception of the Giants. So I'll dive in and I'll take you kind of through the journey that my research took me on. Because the first things I encountered were accounts of Imperial Japanese terror in the 1940s. Uh, in the inner jungles of the Solomon Islands. And the story begins really on Guadalcanal, because Guadalcanal is the first land-based fighting between American forces and the Imperial Japanese in the Second World War. And the Japanese very quickly lost their beachhead and they retreated into the jungle. But this, uh, and a habitual tactic of the Japanese during the Second World War, who were always on uh, the back foot, they were always on the defensive with the Americans. Uh, they lost their up. Their, they lost their foothold very early on. Right. Their strategy was to just go into the interiors of these jungles and sort of wait it out, raid uh, American defenses, and retreat back to the jungle again. It was a war of attrition, a, a guerrilla war. But as the Japanese retreated into the jungles, stories started to emerge of encounters with towering, hairy hominids. These were creatures between eight to, as you say, fifteen feet tall, with red eyes great shaggy black to brown to red hair uh, capable of wielding stone clubs and cudgels and some would outright attack the japanese in the in the inner jungles while others would tear apart trees and ferocious displays of strength and even if they weren't outright harrying the japanese the japanese couldn't sleep at night because during the day they're fighting the americans and the canadians and the british and the australians the new zealanders too the whole allied force but by night, they were kept awake by the howls and the hoots of enormous hominids moving through the trees and smashing apart the undergrowth. And this was the story that I first encountered. And I was fascinated by this. I wanted to learn more. This, for me, was a really interesting little piece of the Second World War. And um, something I really like, and I don't quite know why, but I love, the, I love it when cryptozoology or the supernatural merges with military history. Us too. Um, yes, it's it's I it's my favorite kind of film, my favorite kind of book. I feel there's something because military history. I mean, I'm fascinated by it as my archaeological research in the Solomon Islands will show. I'm really into uh, understanding these particular periods and conflicts, and they are fixed points in time that are defined in countless history books. But it's always so fun when that little bit of the unknown, the little bit of the weird, trickles into these extensively documented periods, um, and. Through my research, I was—I struggled, this is frustrating, I struggled to find any first-hand Japanese accounts of these encounters. Um, while there are blog posts and websites and books written by non-Japanese people about the Japanese experience, it was very hard to find, in fact, I didn't find any Japanese personal anecdotes about encounters with the, the giants of the Solomon Islands. Right. This, there's, so, actually, we wanted to ask you about that, if, if we could, really quick. And, I mean, we're already kind of getting into questions here, I guess. But <clears throat> Please. obviously the islands are so small, and you mentioned just now that the Japanese were basically holing themselves in, and that was the, that was the, that was the goal. It was like guerrilla warfare, yeah. get as far in into these super <clears throat> dense jungles as possible so you can't be <clears throat> reached. And in your article you talked about how these were obviously areas of the Solomons that the locals were no longer uh, living in either. I mean, they had all been uh, exactly. moved out to the coasts in pre-christian or in uh, now christianized times and uh, so they weren't as familiar with the interior of the island so it's almost like the japanese were rediscovering in some ways these areas that that's exactly right it's a rather interesting phenomenon that as the japanese as per their strategy retreated into the rainforest 
they were rediscovering virgin rainforest for the first time in centuries. Uh, now, the, the Solomon Islanders, uh, to under, understand their oral history of themselves, they are one of the oldest human communities on the planet, alongside uh, Melanesians and, Ab and Australian Aborigines, mm -hmm. are among the first out-of-Africa expansion of the human Homo sapiens species. Um, and you'll often find with these very, uh, with these first out-of-Africa movement groups, as you get in Melanesia, in Australia, and in Africa too, uh, where they didn't do large expansions, their mythology doesn't involve them coming to a land, it involves them always being in the land. And in Solomon Island mythology, Solomon Islanders historically believe that their genesis was right in the middle of their islands, and then they gradually worked their way down to the coast. And in more recent times, but pre-colonial times, they lived in the low-lying forest in fortified villages, uh, as um, the Solomon Islanders will often talk about how before the before the missionaries came, they were all headhunters. I don't know if that's entirely true, but the Christianized Solomon Islanders really like to focus upon the the headhunting and the cannibalism, kind of with a morbid fascination. Yeah. But at during that period, which they call the headhunting period, I'm sure it has a far more academic name in certain circles, but the locals call it the headhunting period. They lived in fortified villages in the low lying jungle, already not in the deep interior. Uh, but after missionaries arrived and the headhunting period was ended, there was no longer a need to live in a fortified period uh, in a fortified village. So they started to live on the coast, and the interiors went back to nature. So when the Japanese were retreating into the jungle in the 1940s, they were going into rainforests that had been emptied of human populations for the last 200 years because there is no benefit if you're not scared of being attacked by your neighbors there's no benefit of living in the interior jungle of the solomon islands because they're so mountainous rocky and just choked with jungle it makes it very difficult to comfortably live in but it yeah. also makes it the perfect place for a cryptid to live without encountering people no kidding they, yeah <laughs> it's this idea too of uh I love the, the the story of like the genesis is coming from the in the inner parts of the islands and the fact that like amber well you bring it up in your article and amber um, we, we were talking about this yesterday the limestone tunnel mm. systems yeah, and, and that aspect landscape. because I mean Nick have you ever seen the movie Kong Skull Island? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. This just screams <laughs> that to me. <laughs> oh, it does. I didn't even see that connection exactly. Hollow Earth and everything. Right. Oh, I mean, we can talk about that a little more later. That's actually a section we have uh, it's written, right into for discussion. Discussion. Wow. written into the notes here. But I guess that's a good segue too, because we had a question here for you just about. I mean, there's this perception uh, amongst the local population about the giants, almost as like mm. their ancestors. And you have uh, an acquaintance and a colleague or friend that you've met along the way yes. that has some stuff to say about that as well. Mm -hmm. But mm. you know. Know, considering how they viewed their sort of pre-Christian history, this headhunting period, mm. what I mean, can you just speak to that a little bit? Their their connection to the giants as almost like their ancestors in the times when things were rough on the islands, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. So it's an interesting thing, and it's important to stress that though I could find no connection between uh, there were no Japanese first-hand accounts of the giants, which sort of made me feel a bit deflated. Upon arrival in the islands and I started talking to locals my hopes were rekindled because all the locals say, oh yeah, giants, of course. It's not even a mythical thing for the locals. I mean, some islands, islanders still believe they're giants to this day. Many more believe, oh, the giants went extinct around about the time the missionaries showed up. But on the whole, it, it is interesting. For them, it's almost a, a spiritual extinction in a way. But the idea of have, there having been giants 
living and interacting with the human population on the island is well established. So even if this, the, the Japanese, and they actually said to me, they're like, oh, I've never heard a story of the Japanese being attacked, but I wouldn't be surprised if they were, if they went into the interior, that's where you're going to, going to find the giants. So of course they were attacked. So even if the Japanese hadn't given the stories themselves, the locals said, well, if the Japanese are in the interiors, that's where they'll find the giants. So as far as how the giant connects, connect, or how the, as far as how the giants connect um, to the, Solomon Island population, there is, it, it does get interesting because there is a deal of guilt almost when they look back upon their headhunting times. And I think they were sort of taught to really dislike their pre-colonial, pre-missionary heritage. They're all, they're very proud Christians now. And I think when they look back upon how they lived before the arrival of missionaries, there is this deeply ingrained guilt with how they behaved. And they look back on their headhunting and their cannibalism. And I mean, you can say what you want about headhunting and cannibalism, but I mean, cultures are cultures and cultures will behave in ways that other cultures will find hard to understand or unfathomable, but it doesn't make them worse. For sure. But I think a, I think a big part of, their, um, of the colonial teachings was that they were bad for being cannibals. But an interesting thing that I encountered in my research was that Often the giants are also described as being cannibals as well. And in some cases, the idea that humans were cannibals was because they had prolonged contact with the giant populations in the interior. So the idea is that these savage, brutish, man-eating half-humans were, were, were a separate creature that were influencing the behavior of the humans who would later uh, convert. And it's almost as if they found a way to explain away what they now believe to be an embarrassing past by sort of saying, we were not the monsters that we perceive cannibals to be, but they're sort of blaming that monstrous element of the historical culture on another creature entirely. Uh, so sort of the beast yeah. of the jungle is not themselves, but it is a separate physical entity that was influencing them. Yeah, that's just fascinating. And that that is a strange way. It's almost like they're attempting to other a side of themselves that, of course, yes. in these <clears throat> modern times yeah. is not very kosher. <laughs> mm -hmm. But that, to me, again, it speaks to this weird uh, bifurcation, but then also a little bit of ambiguity surrounding the idea of ancestorship and perhaps having two distinct species, but species that are still interbreeding. I know you mm -hmm. did mention that story of Mango, that woman that yes. supposedly was impregnated and, and whisked off into the jungle by one of these giants. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's fascinating to me too. I don't know if you want to speak to that a little bit further. Or... Yes, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll absolutely address that. So the understanding is that giants, though they are a separate creature to the humans of the Solomon Islands can interbreed with homo sapiens and they can produce they they can both interbreed but they can produce viable offspring so they are closer as a species to humans than say um was it is it donkeys and horses can they reproduce they can but their offspring yeah. is sterile the mules. Yes. Yeah. offspring mules but a mule cannot produce its own offspring um but there seems to be an understanding that you can produce offspring and that offspring can also go on to produce offspring and that will tie into my friend ishmael which we'll probably get to in a moment of course, of course. but in the in the story of mango mango was a solomon island woman who i'm not sure which island she hailed from but she was abducted she went missing 
And then, this is what I find kind of wild, 25 years later, she was found in a field uh, on, the, on the verge of madness, heavily pregnant. Um, how you could even recognize her after 25 years sort of is something to be discussed maybe elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But the idea was basically this was the same woman who had gone missing, now pregnant. And she insisted when she had sort of regained um, her sanity slightly, uh, because she was hysterical upon discovery, is that she'd been abducted by giants. Uh, one had, to quote the book I read, taken her as a bride, which is full of problematic intonations. Yes. Um, but she had managed to escape and now was bearing the child of a giant. And she, she, was, she gave birth to this child, uh, but um, tragically the child was considered an aberration by the local community and killed within a few years of its birth. Um, but that's like it does a very dark story a slightly more upbeat story if i could do you want me to tangent into my friend ishmael now we might as well sure, sure because yeah. i yeah. definitely have questions about some of the objects that come up yes 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 i actually uh i downloaded an image of that stone which oh. i will also send to you as well Amazing. oh perfect. awesome i found it today when i was going through my files awesome um, sounds good i actually was going to ask you about that that's perfect yeah <laughs> Yeah, that birthright stone. We definitely had some questions about that. Yeah. And just his story in general, because he had some interesting um, divergences from the physical description. He was saying they weren't as hairy and things like that. So I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit further as well. Yeah, so I I spoke to as many locals as I could during my time on the islands, uh, trying to see if anyone had stories about giants. And some people would say, oh, no giants, but Kakamora, definitely, which is a different entity entirely, which we can also discuss. But Ishmael said, oh, yes, no, giants. Giants are very common, not in Columbangara, which is where I was working. Ishmael was a school teacher at a local school, and I was there giving a presentation on the Second World War. And Ishmael said, well, not in Columbangara. We don't have any giants. But he comes from the island of Malaysia, and Malaysia is historically replete with giants. And he said, yes, I'm very familiar with giants. My great, great grandfather was a giant. Mm-hmm. He said, and I just thought this, this is amazing. Yeah. He said, yes, giants, very, we, we, we are, a lot of us are descended from giants. Uh, my great, great grandfather was a giant. And I said, well, do they look different? He says, no, they don't look different from humans. They look the same. They're just very, very large. Uh, and he went on to say, That's not like that mm. was, that was absent of the, the red, black, brown hair type type vibe which almost implies to me sorry to cut you off there that this was what they maybe looked like at some point a long time ago and now they're almost like a feral what's left of them that are now hairy and much more like you know looking a little bit more uh, disheveled out in the jungle interesting yeah <clears throat> it's actually really interesting or alternatively it could almost be that descriptions of the hairy giants have been passed down for generations longer than the more recent oh i'm related to a giant which are looking more humanoid or else it could be a more feral holdout either is a very appealing option (laughs) but from what what, from what ishmael was saying he said no my 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 great great grandfather was a giant in the pre-colonial headhunting days he was a warrior of renown who died of old age which is very rare in, in those times apparently for him to have lived through so many wars and tribal conflicts without being killed. Uh, And he was protected in his battles by his birthright stone, which was a enormous stone cudgel. uh, We're looking at it right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very hard for scale because that's just an Ishmael's house. I never saw it myself. Ishmael sent me the photo. So I think you can see a, a, um, uh, uh, what, uh, 
wireless cable going behind the stone. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's propped up against the wall inside his house. So this stone was a stone tool, a weapon used by his great-great-grandfather as a club. Um, I don't know how large it is. Even if it's a foot high, it's going to be incredibly oh, heavy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the, the family the family keep it to this day. They use it as a devil watcher. The idea being that it can predict the movement of devils and it will thus keep the family safe, which I think is a is a, a way they remember how it was used in battle right. 200 years ago or so. And the this this man, this 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 giant ancestor of Ishmael, that was interesting too because Ishmael said, "Well, normally they live in the Abalolo trees, uh, which I which I've I've been unable to find online mention of Abalolo trees. I think it's a local dialect which I am unable to discover. But they they are very large trees in the inner jungle, probably similar similar to the Bunyan tree, which I've seen mentioned in English language documents talking about the Solomon Islands. Okay. Uh, but his particular great great grandfather did not live in the Abalolo trees, but lived in the cave systems." which again ties us back into the stories of the giants of Guadalcanal. So it really, it, it really feeds into the myth already and into the other anecdotes in a really interesting fashion. It really does. And I, I, I'm really, I'm genuinely fascinated by the, almost like the adaptation of the now Christianized Islanders too, like to, to take a sacred object from pre-Christian times and then use it as a devil watcher, like, because it still has power. So we're going to use it for something else. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. almost to me like I don't even know. There's something about the idea of the giants as separate from humans as a as a species too, from like a way almost like prehistory period of the Earth almost strikes mm-hmm. me from a Christian lens, similar to like the fallen. You know what I mean? Like interbreeding yeah. with yeah. something that's like half like you know what I mean? Like some sort of a giant or whatever. It's very striking. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's that is. Rem- I never thought of that actually. I've only looked at this through a through. A, an archaeological perspective but a biblical perspective is really interesting too because that opens up sort of instances where giants are being encountered elsewhere in the world in prehistoric times as well and it also seems to have somehow existed in collective memories of certain cultures yeah which really ties into what we understand about early homo sapien interaction with other human species like neanderthal and denisovan which i can also i would like to discuss that at some point because that's my big theory relating to the solomon islanders so that's that is actually so fascinating. Amber, you wanted to ask about this Marius Boyeran. Oh gosh, how, how do you yeah. pronounce this last name? I guess name? we can go there now. Is, hey? is, that, is that a decent segue? Because that was one of the. <laughs> I'm I'm notorious for poor segues on the show. <laughs> Everyone listening knows that already. Uh, but uh, this, I mean, obviously this guy, like, I mean, we can come back to Ishmael too because I've got more questions about that. But this was oh, one yeah. of the main sources. Uh, self-proclaimed yeah. anthropologist. Unfortunately. Yes. Yes. Um, so I know, Amber, you had some questions on that. Well, like, yeah, like, I tried to dig into this guy a little bit. Uh, like you said, right, he's this self-proclaimed uh, Australian anthropologist, and he did write this book, uh, Solomon Island mm-hmm. Mysteries, Giants to UFOs and Everything in Between, or something along those lines. But from yep. what I was able to gather, like, there's basically nothing on this guy. Like, I was at the point where I was like, is this guy just, like, is he imaginary? Like, you know what I mean? Like, all you can see is listings of his book online. Like, you know, there's pages and pages of that. And there was mm. one mention of him on a cryptid wiki stating he was an ex-RAF pilot or something to that nature. But I was just mm. curious if you had any knowledge or background on him or had an idea of when he was around the Solomon Islands and the types of people he was talking to. It seems like he's a colorful character and that he's involved with 
quite a few people, like the premiers mentioned in one of those stories, the finance minister right. Victor, that seems like a character. <laughs> Just Victor, it's like Prince. Just, Just Victor. Just Victor. Prince, the finance minister. <laughs> All right. uh, yeah. But I was curious if you could maybe speak to that a little bit and, and give us an idea of who this guy was. Yes, yes, absolutely. So, uh, Bo- Bo- Boyarian, Boyarian, I'm not entirely sure how his name is said either. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> from what I understood, he was a helicopter pilot for the Australians. And Australia is very involved uh, with the Solomon Islands as the nearest sort of big nation. And I think he'd been flying a lot of trips to and from the Solomon Islands for many years. And ultimately, he settled there and married a Solomon Islander and then began to collect stories from her family as well as extended families. And ultimately, this began this became sort of him collecting all the strange fables and folklore of the Solomon Islands and putting them into this book. And you're right, there's almost nothing... That's what I could glean from a website which had put his entry on giants you know microsoft sam that robot voice oh. that you get on your used to get in your so there's there's a there's a female version the name of which escapes me microsoft sally maybe <laughs> and there was a website which had taken his extracts on giants and then made a documentary in inverted commas where they just put his 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 uh, words into the microsoft sally voice generator and then played still images of the Solomon Islands over it and that was the one website where I found any detail about him about him being a helicopter pilot etc everywhere else his name shows up and his book listings show up alongside a lot of very harsh critics discussing the validity of his tales and I don't want to get I don't know I take personal issue with the way he approached his work but I think he has, in some cases, honestly collected Solomon Island folklore and put it into a, a format where it's available at least online. And in regards to his discussion of giants, that was corroborated by first-hand sources that I spoke with, yes. as well as other websites that aren't influenced by the Boyreon books that discuss giants. Some of his other things, I feel, are a little bit worse. Um, yeah. his discussions of sort of secret global governments, yeah. lizard men, it reptiles. Well, it, it seems like it's kind it, of like it, everything but the kitchen sink, kind of a conspiratorialist mm, kind yeah. of uh, angle. Isn't that always disheartening yeah. too, where you start off, you're like, okay, this is interesting. And then it just trails into like, a, ah, yeah. <laughs> it's, that's, that's the, that's such a problem when you're dealing with cryptozoology, because it, it really toys the line between, sort of hard fact but then it very easily bleeds into conspiracy theories and it's sometimes unclear where that line will lie and i suppose if you go far enough down a cryptid path you might end up in the conspiracy theories part of the world yeah no doubt which it's 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 a tricky thing you had here i was just uh while skeptics and book critics alike have been critical of Boerion's habit of extrapolation which sees him jump in a single sentence from discussion of hairy hominids to theories of shadowy world government-led operations intent on flushing flying reptilian humanoids out of the Solomon Island jungles, <laughs> etc., etc. I just love that beginning of that sentence there. It's just and once again, we're back to Skull oh. Island again with the, uh, the, <laughs> the lizard creatures coming up from the uh, from the cave systems. Exactly. And stuff. I mean, to go back oh. to the idea of just like cryptozoology towing this this line, which is obviously why mm. it's important to have people like you interested in it because you have actual like credentials behind you and you're, you're interested from an academic perspective. It's not just about sensationalizing yeah. something, which is awesome. Um, the the idea of evidence in cryptozoology it's difficult yes. it's tough 
Uh, oh, but what yeah. we have with this case are at least a few little, you know, uh, tidbits mm. to go off of. You mentioned the uh, the gold ridge, uh, the, the gold mining, uh, the company, the footprints yeah. uh, that were discovered in 1995. So that was a pretty interesting story. You know, maybe you could get, excuse me, maybe you could give a quick recap of, for our listeners on that one. The heavy equipment uh, stuck in the mud. Yes. And, and so forth. Yes. So, yes, you're absolutely right. So it, it is often... It is, from my personal perspective, I am certainly not like a, a wholehearted believer in everything, yeah. but I don't like to be a skeptic either because I think being a skeptic makes the world so boring. So for me, I really want to believe in these things, but I need scientifically justified evidence. Yes. And that can be hard when it comes to UFOs or to the supernatural because sometimes the argument would be that our science can't quite yet explain these things. So it's actually beyond science. But in the case of cryptids, I think they must conform to biological laws and physical laws which confine the rest of the world and in that regard i'm very happy to delve into cryptozoology and into this particular story because a lot of the stories about giants they come across in a very plausible prosaic almost because they're so mundane kind of way and the gold ridge incident is a good example so there was a gold mine on gold ridge uh the name is derivative um and in the early 90s uh, a minister and a um, premier, the minister known only as Victor and the premier unnamed, were on their way up to visit this ridge, but I get ahead of myself. A year before the minister and Victor made their visit, there was they were doing forestry clearing in order to clear more land in order to expand the size of the gold mine. And one of the pins in the bulldozer that was clearing the jungle broke. And this is, a, I think it was a 10-ton blade attached to the front was, yeah. of this. Yeah, 10 ton blade attached to the bulldozer and you need industrial equipment to move that so it was unhooked from the bulldozer and everyone went home for the day resolving the next day to come back with proper equipment to move the broken blade from where it was stuck in the mud and they returned the next morning to gold ridge only to discover that the blade was not where they'd left it and more puzzling still were the three to four foot long humanoid footprints in the mud around where the blade had been resting uh, it is important to acknowledge that he, even human footprints when put into soft soil like clay or snow or sand will often look a lot bigger after a bit of weathering but three to four feet is remarkably large even with weathering taken into account and also how did the blade move and the blade was found not long after about 100 meters away from where it had been left in the jungle so something with very big feet had picked up and moved the blade and a year later this is when victor and the minister were visiting gold ridge just to, uh, just to do a regular governmental survey on the way up to gold ridge their car bounced off the road and went into a rut on the side of the road this happens all the time in the solomon islands it happened to me when i was driving in columbangra quite a lot the roads are often just cleared forest and the ground is clay so when it gets wet or when it gets very dry the ground becomes very unstable so the car bounces off the road into a rut and the two men got out and walked down the road to a nearby village to gather together a posse of 30 of 20 men 12 men I forget the number. It was 30, a group I think of it was. quite a few. It was 30. It was 30 men. Okay, that's good. I read the article this morning, so try and refresh my memory. <laughs> they, they gathered together a posse of 30 men to walk and get the car out of the rut. And when they got up there, they found the car was back on the road again with two towering hairy hominids standing next to the car. And the men fled immediately in terror. And when they returned half an hour later, they discovered that 
there was no one next to the car, but the car had been moved out of the rut. And again, there were these enormous footprints around and they were even able to determine how these towering humans had pulled the car out of the rut by finding the positioning of the footprints in the mud around the car and in the rut. And Victor was even able to say that it was the larger of the two standing by the hood of the car that had actually sort of bounced the car out of the rut while the smaller one looks like it just stood and watched. So they had enough evidence with the footprints to piece together how these two enormous creatures moved the car. And when they spoke to Boyreon later, because again, it was Boyreon who shared the story internationally, and Boyreon asked how large were these two men you saw standing by the car, Victor and the minister pointed to some nearby trees, which Boyreon estimates were about 15 feet tall. Right. So that gives you an idea for the, the height, supposed height, of these giants that had very altruistically pulled a car out of a ditch on the side of the road. Yes, yeah, the exact opposite of what the uh, those poor Japanese soldiers, I guess, would have been experiencing <laughs> in, in the dense jungle. Uh, or, or I suppose they could have just been in similar, like, you know, to moving the uh, the blade or the pin from the bulldozer, like, didn't really know that they were helping. They just wanted to move something heavy and it ended up uh, out of the rut and, or whatever. It almost seems like it's curiosity. I yeah. mean, they're just sort of playing around with the things humans are leaving in their part of the jungle. And none of these humans are staying in these parts of the jungle overnight. They're all returning to their villages. Whereas the Japanese were not living in villages. They were living rough in the jungle. So they were probably, if the stories are true, they were living in the heart of giant territory for prolonged periods of time. The giants were probably not too happy about that. Yes. But maybe if you just come and go and leave bits of strange metal around, the giants are going to be a little bit more placid. Because they're curious rather than outwardly aggressive, possibly. You know, yeah, that's and that the curiosity factor is interesting because you drew some connections with the similarities between obviously the giants being massive, but then also these very these much smaller uh, stature creatures that are the, the Kakamora that you had mentioned. Mm. So if we can maybe get into that because you talked about them a little bit with being, you know, uh, uh, interested in music and development mm. of language, um, yeah. but the inability to make fire. And that immediately mm. re reminded us, so we did an episode a while back on the peoples of uh, North Sentinel Island, and that just reminded me of what you talked about with the, the, uh, the arguments amongst scholars with the possible land bridge connecting a lot of these places from Indonesia all the way over through uh, to, to the Solomons and, and so on and so forth. And obviously there's a lot of other small creatures, the Orang Pendek uh, we've done on the yes. show. And, mm -hmm. and it, it, this the Kakamora really reminded us of a lot of those things. Yeah. So maybe you could get into the Kakamora a, a little bit. I'd, I'd absolutely love to. It is very interesting how stories of small hairy hominids seem quite common on islands and then large hairy hominids seem very common on larger countries, which ties into dwarfism which you encounter with uh like populations of large animals on small islands will ever evolve to be smaller we saw that with the um, homo floriensis yes. that the flores human that was referred to as the hobbit that was around fifty thousand years ago again on that chain of islands that ultimately leads off into the solomon yeah. so you get these small hominids either proved in the fossil record or in the mythology of the people all throughout that region but so the kakamora interesting so when I was on Columbangara trying to start conversations without sounding too crazy, you know, when we're busy talking about Japanese wartime dugouts and bombing raids, and I say, have you heard anything about uh, gorilla people? Um, but the locals on Columbangara <laughs> said to me, uh, um, the locals on Columbangara, uh, aside from Ishmael, who knew about giants, I said, well, it sounds like you're talking about Kakamora. 
And so Kakamora feature in, again, a lot of island mythology, uh, a lot of islands mythologies from the, from the Solomons. I mean, the Solomons are a lot of different tribes. But they all have a shared um, folklore when it comes to Kakamora, who are small, maybe four or five feet high, very hairy, again, red, brown, or black hair, uh, very smelly, which is another common thing with humanoid entities, it seems. I mean, you get the, what is it, the skunk ape? Yeah, the skunk in, ape. In, in yeah. Sasquatch has been described a lot as being pretty nasty. Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting, yeah. isn't it? Just they're all they're all stinky. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're small, they're stinky, they've got very sharp claws, which they can use to kill people. On the whole, they go after fruit, nuts, veggies, the occasional possum. But they have also been known to eat humans as well, which again, I think ties into this sort of creating this non-human other that is the cannibal. Um, and they, again, live in the interiors of these, of these jungle islands. And though they're never really discussed as being anything like the giants, they are often described as either dwelling in tall trees or more importantly in the karstic systems specifically of the islands of Guadalcanal and Malaysia both Guadalcanal and Malaysia have a Malata Malatia Malatia sorry have well established stories of giants living in the caves of the central jungles and yet the Kakamora inhabit the exact same habitat and so the Kakamora are encountered more frequently by people when they come out of the forest at dusk and sort of come into the outskirts of human settlements, often to steal uh, fruit from plantations. And what I think is one of the most interesting stories relating to Kakamora, or two really, one is that there is a well-established story that there were once apes living on Malatia that would come and take fruit from farms, but they're presumed to be extinct now. That is an oral story which i think ties very closely in with kakamora but they've never been said to be kakamora but the other thing is that kakamora sightings had diminished with the advent of firearms being brought by uh, colonizers in the 1800s but in the 1920s the british colonial authorities banned local solomon islanders from owning firearms and within months of the ban on firearms kakamora sightings began to spike again as these creatures started coming out of the jungle more and maybe you have some thoughts on that but i think it's very interesting that if this was a truly folkloric creature its life cycle and habitat and behavior is impacted by real socio-political uh movements made by governments that's absolutely fascinating i really appreciated that part of the story and the idea that these creatures these kakamora are so they are intellectual to the extent that they can recognize when the situations change not in their favor and they're being threatened and thus yeah recede mm. into the deeper parts of the forest um i'm curious though like with this advent of guns entering the islands there were no kakamora actually killed or any stories related to that hey i understand that some kakamora were killed but it's a case of <clears throat> Oh, yes, I heard that Kakamora was shot, and this man shot a Kakamora, right. but no one has held on to the bodies of the Kakamora. Yeah, of so there are stories that Kakamora shot. In fact, so many were shot that they knew for a fact that the weakest point on a Kakamora was its buttocks. If you shot on the buttocks, it would cause it the most pain. We were going to ask which about I think that. Is, that's a strain. That seems yeah. like, well, I mean, I guess, I mean, it's going to hurt to get shot in the ass, but it just seems like an <laughs> odd spot to be the, the main <laughs> spot, the target spot. Yeah. The weakest point. It makes me almost think of them being baboons, hairy all over, but then with exposed buttocks. So it's just, it's a more, exactly a more obvious target. Uh, but it is very interesting that these creatures seem so directly impacted by 
very prosaic human hunting patterns. And the other thing you mentioned before is that the Kakamura are known to sing. They will, uh, they've been seen in gatherings in, in the forest singing very eerie songs. They have their own sort of gibbering language. Right. Uh, they, can't, they can't make fire, but they will happily steal fire made by humans to make their own fires and and that is so and that is where i have to i have to interject because it's like this is where this ties in for me your ideas on some sort of ties to like pre-neolithic peoples like that just reminds me so much of like the north sentinelese that we cover in the idea that they're this Mm. pre-neolithic the last sort of pre-neolithic people you know forty thousand years ago were there can't make fire supposedly gonna harvest you know lightning strikes and things like that and then we have what seems to be because you know the peoples of the solomon islands we we came across a lot of other pretty woo woo creatures as well where you know like a a, mm. a, a merman half shark like entity in the waters yeah. and things like there's a lots of things like that but these are so much more literal mm-hmm. the ties yes. to the to the gun to the <clears throat> gun laws and stuff like that and then it just sounds like a pre-neolithic entity it really person. does like, that's what it sounds like I read an I read an anthropological account written I think by German anthropologists working alongside some local colonial authorities on the um, Solomon Islanders from the early 1900s who wrote really prosaic descriptions of the behavior of Kakamora in the most in, in such a way that you sort of think they're, they're just treating them like they're real creatures right. they talk about their diets and their their lifestyles and in a in a way that you wouldn't describe a mermaid as 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 you mentioned right. and. I, I put the Kakamora and the Giants as being the same species myself. And this is something I haven't really seen discussed online, but considering that they look so similar in their descriptions, aside from their size, they inhabit the same islands. The, the islands that have the most giant stories also have the most Kakamora stories. It's important to, to know. And they both live in the same cave systems together. And just evolutionarily, we know that Two creatures that have the exact same ecological niche cannot coexist without one driving the other to extinction. So if these are two separate species, they cannot exist in this way that they're being described as because they have the exact same diet and behavior and everything. But what I do think is that it's entirely plausible that the Kakamora are just juvenile giants or other giants are adult Kakamora. And the idea of something growing from four feet tall to 15, I, I don't think giants get to 15 feet high. Because if they did, we would have to know about them by this point. Because something that large, even if they're in very isolated parts of the forest, cannot they would need such a huge range to forage in to be something Absolutely. that big, to just have the energy requirements. But I think it's a very common thing. It's the fisherman's tale. The story gets the creature gets bigger in the retelling. And I think it's especially true when you find something that's inexplicable and terrifying. When you get home, you're not gonna say, Oh, and it was about as big as me, because that doesn't People say, well, what if it was just a guy? So you say, oh, it was, it was 20 feet tall. And so I think there was this encountering... It was half my size. <laughs> it came up to my knee, but, but yeah. like, get me, it was really scary. But I think if you encounter something that looks so close to being a human, but just doesn't quite have the physiognomy that we expect in a, human, in a homo sapien, that is very alarming. And so when you're retelling that encounter, but you're like, I need to make this sound scary, so I'll... I'll make it bigger. But I think the giants don't get to 15 feet, and I do think the giants are Kakamora. Do you you think that there's any part of it that is just like a straight cautionary tale for like young Solomon Islanders, like don't go into the jungle type type thing too? Like, is there an element of that? I think there's a a very big part of it that is because these creatures live in the most inhospitable 
parts of the jungle. I tried to go into the interior of Columbangra one day. We just wanted to try and find some... Um, we wanted to go to a waterfall, actually, that were taken us by an old abandoned headhunter's village. We were like, well, this sounds great. Yeah. And we got about... We got two kilometers in. It took us four hours, but the rainstorms were so heavy that all the rivers flooded and we nearly lost over 2,000 pounds worth of camera equipment in the river as oh we God. struggled back home again. Um, and all our electronics were ruined for the rest of the expedition. The electronics that weren't in their waterproof bags and we all lacerated our feet. It was terrible. And that was a summer rainstorm two kilometers into the jungle. And the thing is, these jungles, it's very difficult to eck out an existence in there. Uh, short of being able to fell the forest and institute plantations and farms, there's nothing really big enough to hunt. I mean, you can forage for fruit and berries and there's many small birds and reptiles, but really it makes the most sense to live along the coast where you can fish because the Solomon Islands waters are some of the most biodiverse in the world. They're full of fish. Yeah. The jungles are inviting because they're mysterious, but they are so dangerous to go into and they're impossible to inhabit. So it makes a lot of sense that you would invent cautionary tales to dissuade people from going in there by saying, well, there are monsters living in there that will eat you if you go into this part of the jungle. The fact that these creatures live in the most inhospitable parts could be seen as a warning against going into dangerous regions. That's so fascinating. I'm when I read that part of the article too, I was like, oh man, let's just plan another expedition. Let's go back. We'll come with you. I know. <laughs> I want to so bad. I mean, obviously we're looking at Google Earth and, and, and just images of the Solomons and stuff. Like yeah. how far in would you have to go to actually reach the entrance of one of these limestone caves potentially? Like, is it accessible it, with like a hardcore expedition? Oh, it would be accessible. Yes, it, it absolutely would be. I mean, you could, People have, and you. I mean, people lived in the jungles historically as, as headhunters. You can go into the jungles. It's just you need to be very well prepared, well provisioned with a good team of guides. Right. But this is the other thing. Like Boyreon has lived in the Solomons his entire life, but he's always found reasons to not visit the caves. Sure. But the caves are there. They are geographically there. So you could mount an expedition to get in there. I mean, Columbangra Island, which doesn't have the cave systems. Um, you can it takes three days the the island's not particularly large but it takes three days to walk from its from its periphery to its center just because it is such a incredible traverse of canyons and forest right. but it is possible and i do plan to go back so i'll bring you with me sounds good 100 let us know when and where and we will be there because i am just yeah i would be thrilled to be a part of something like that i'm curious though like is there any sort of other uh, known natural threats like besides like obviously the weather the terrain like are there lots of poisonous things over there like there we didn't is look in Australia into that, yeah. <laughs> like I'm curious like even the insects alone yeah, like, what so, did you have to do to prep <laughs> I did uh, horribly little prep this was the first expedition I'd ever organized prior to this I just worked for various companies and universities and archaeology and then I said I'm going to the jungle to find ruins because that's what I've always wanted to do and I got together a little team of idiots to join me and we all went off and we're like oh god we didn't plan for this at all but you know we, we still managed to muddle our research out of the whole thing but happily in the Solomon Islands there's no big predators there are no um, poisonous snakes there are snakes plenty of snakes but no poisonous snakes nice. Uh, plen plenty of mosquitoes. Mosquitoes might be among the worst things. Really, the most difficult things in the jungle out there is the temperature and the weather. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Very hot and very, like, rainy. Um, very, oh, God, it's stiflingly yeah. humid. 
the thing about the jungle, and this is something I've seen testified by both Japanese and American allied soldiers who fought through the Solomon Islands, is that you don't have to have big predators. And in fact, you very rarely get large predators on small islands because things get smaller if they live a long period of time on small islands. The Komodo dragon is rather interesting in being such a large reptile for such a small island. Yeah. But it is, an, it is an offshoot of Megalania, which was a gigantic monitor lizard that lived in Australia. So it's actually smaller than its prehistoric ancestors. Mm -hmm. But on the whole, while you do get large, I mean, the orangutans in Borneo too, you do get large animals living on small islands. But on the whole, most creatures that get to isolated islands get there by being washed there uh, on bits of driftwood and forest, which is washed from other places during storms. Mm -hmm. So the creatures that get there are often going to be quite small. And the, the Solomon Islands is a good example. I mean, they've got a, a plethora of bird life. They've got a lot of reptiles, nothing too big and too dangerous. Yeah. But the weather, the climate, and this is the thing that the Allies often said is that it was almost, you know, fighting the Japanese was bad in its own way, but more people got sick by cutting themselves on sharp leaves and that getting infected by bad water. That's the real risk in the jungle. And because there's nothing big, there's nothing you can hunt in order to actually have food to survive out there. Right. Like, I guess the possum, like you mentioned sort of like possum, maybe like creatures would maybe be one of the bigger rodents, I guess, yes. to eat. Oh, I mean, yeah. yeah. There are certainly, there are enough animals, like if you were forced to live in the jungle, I mean, human, and this thing again, humans have lived in these jungles before. You can live there, but it's very difficult to just show up as a modernized person and be able to survive there, which is why I think a cautionary story about giants could be the case like of course you say it's very dangerous and a modernized human is going to die if they try to live out there but at the same time these regions are so inaccessible that there could be things out there that we do not know about and simultaneously just because a modern even a modern Solomon islander is going to struggle living in the interior something that has lived in the interior for 70 80 90 thousand years is going to be adapted to living in the interior yeah. so it's inaccessibility for humans, uh, Homo sapiens, does not mean it couldn't support a population of other things. That's a perfect segue, too, because I know Amber wanted to talk to you, ask about an unidentified species of orangutan. Oh, yes. Mm. Yes, that was an uh, interesting angle. I, I was curious if you think this is the most plausible theory as to what the true identity of these creatures could be. And, and that speaking mm. to the uh, abalolo tree as well as this... Uh, as this perhaps the habitat like yeah. you know like um obviously you never had a chance to actually go and see any of these trees but uh, i'm curious uh as to what your thoughts are on it's the, the same theory with orang pendek and with a lot it, of these yeah. like malate like malaysian and yeah, different, was a, you know, yeah. a different species of orangutan and i think that's exactly mm -hmm. Man of the forest. i think it does because there's also the orang dalam in in right. malaysia yeah. as well there's and again, orang in the Malay means man of. Like orangutan means man of the forest because they look so humanoid, but they're not. And so the fact that you get all along the chain, these island chains, you get these stories of very orangutan sounding entities makes me think it's very possible it could just be orangutans. And what I said before about animals get blown from one island to another on driftwood and bits of forest that have been washed down in storms. It's a very logical way. It is the only way these islands are... Um, inhabited by creatures until humans invented boats was actually by being blown out there in a storm but that is how these animals have historically got around the precedent has already been set so it would be entirely plausible I think that you could get 
uh, primates such as um, orangutans being blown from island to island to island and inhabiting and settling there, living in small populations, presumably because they can't support a large population, maybe a very small population to begin with is what showed up. So my initial theory was that it, if it was anything, it would be an orangutan. Because an orangutan, if seen quickly in the forest, looks like a very hairy man with red to brown fur. So it does, it really plays into every single description of Kakamora and giants. And it wouldn't be impossible for creatures to be blown out there in storms on driftwood because that is what has happened historically. The only suspension of disbelief we'd have to employ here is by saying that they were blown to the Solomon Islands and we have no evidence of that yet. But everything else is plausible and reinforced by science, except for the fact that local narratives address that giants and Kakamora are far more humanoid than they are like other animals. Which I feel that might just be if if we if we say that's all just folklore and storytelling, then I think the giants and the Kakamora could turn out to be a previously undescribed uh, subspecies of orangutan. That would be possibility number one, if you will. Which would be amazing, and I mm-hmm. think a lot of people sometimes get caught up with cryptozoology being the Loch Ness Monster and, and, and so on and so forth, but that would in and of itself be cryptozoology, right? I mean, it's an undiscovered oh, species or whatever, yeah. and, and that would be that would be amazing. Yeah. Obviously, even more amazing would be a relic human. <laughs> uh, yes. Which is kind it's... of what we root for all the time. Yeah, uh, of course. So, yeah. I mean, Amber, did Well, you... that idea, too, you mentioned Homo ergaster, if I'm saying that correctly, mm. as a potential... Uh, origin for like an offshoot species potentially um yes yes so i'll I'll get into the second theory which is more exciting and harder to prove but (laughs) it is interesting that in cryptozoology i mean if if it were to turn out that there were just an undescribed species of orangutan living out there that would be really exciting but i think would immediately become prosaic again cryptozoology kind of thrives in things not yet being prosaically understood and also there's almost i feel an an innate selfishness when we approach these stories we love the idea of them being almost human (laughs) if it just turned out to be a species of orangutan it would become less interesting almost like it's just it's just another ape we are to be honest humans are another ape but we like them to be so close to being human but not quite human because that has this allure this deep-rooted allure and so that Yes, it's 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 that it's that uncanny valley thing, and so that then takes us into the second possibility for the genesis of the giant. Ooh, that's a good title. Uh, and this is the one that I I like this one, but again, it's it's hard to prove. It's it's not a, it's not impossible though. So Homo sapiens left Africa. Everyone, sit down and get out your school books. Yes, yes. Homo sapiens left Africa. Uh, for good, about 70,000, no, sorry, for 40, about 40,000 years ago, humans moved north out of Africa. This Homo sapiens moved into Europe and then expanded into Asia. As they moved and expanded, they encountered other human species, such as Homo neanderthalensis living in Europe and Homo denisova living in Siberia. And we believe Homo erectus, which is the direct descendant of Homo ergaster, living in Asia, but there is less archaeological evidence in that particular region. But though this is the big out of Africa movement that is commonly known, there were 
other out of Africa expansions. So if we go back in time to 70,000 years ago, we have the first successful human out of Africa expansion where they don't go north into Europe, but they go east around the base of Arabia, down across India and Indonesia, which at this point, due to it being an ice age, it was all connected land masses and out towards Papua New Guinea. And along the way, 70,000 years ago, Homo sapiens were interbreeding with Denisovans and Neanderthals quite freely because at this point they are not speciated to such an extent that they were different creatures. Right. Which is why if you look at genetics today, it is um, Pap indigenous Papua New Guineans and Australian Aborigines who have the highest predominance of Neanderthal and Denisovan genes in their genetic makeup. But then if we go back even further from 70,000 years ago, about 200,000 years ago, humans for the first time ever attempted to leave Africa. This is Homo sapiens for the first time ever attempt to leave Africa. And they go into the Levant, into Israel, where they meet local Neanderthal populations. And at this point, the species have not speciated enough to be very distinctly different at all. I mean, physically, from the skeletons, they do look different, but it doesn't seem they were recognizing that difference between each other because there is a lot of interbreeding in this first ever encounter between Homo sapiens and Homo neanderthalensis. And then if we go back in time even further to about a million years to million and a half years ago, we have Homo erectus, the ancestor of all the other Homo species I've just mentioned, that's Ergaster, Denisova, Neanderthal and sapiens. Homo erectus, which starts off as Ergaster in Africa, moves out and expands across the entire world. And Homo ergaster gives rise to Homo erectus in Asia. Right. And Homo erectus becomes Homo floriensis living in the island of Flore. So I'm just kind of, this is, I, I might be a little convoluted, but I'm sort of, humans, the genus Homo, have moved out of Africa on numerous occasions dating back at least two million years. But Homo sapiens are the most recent genus Homo to leave Africa. But the world was already colonized and populated by other species of humans when humans made their successful voyages 70,000 and 40,000 years ago out of Africa, there were already other human species. Right. And by about 40,000 years ago, these species were starting to look distinct enough that you don't really get much interbreeding between Neanderthals and sapiens when they enter Europe. But there is still a low level of interbreeding. So clearly they looked distinct enough to not be attractive towards one another, but occasionally interbreeding did occur. It shows that at this period, 40,000 years ago, humans were still not genetically distinct enough from these other species of human, Homo sapiens were not genetically distinct enough, to not interbreed. And now, having given you that very rushed, convoluted history of human out of Africa expansions, we can turn our attention to the Solomon Islands. We have evidence that Homo erectus, the descendant of Homo ergaster, spread down to at least the island of Flores throughout Indonesia, which, and if you look at a map, and if you follow the island chains from Indonesia out through Papua New Guinea, mm -hmm. you find the Solomon Islands at the end of this chain. Yes. So they would have been able to travel along the, this, this length of land masses. Some of those would have been connected by land bridges during the Ice Age. Some may not have been, but it could have been a case of boat building that we don't know anything about or being blown from island to island again uh, on, on leaf matter, forest matter. But it is entirely plausible, considering the expansion of pre-Homo sapiens human groups, that you could have got a population settling on the Solomon Islands. And as we know from subsequent Homo sapiens out of Africa expansion events, Homo sapiens were able to interbreed and interact with these other species of humans, at least in a limited fashion, up until about forty to 30,000 years ago, which is 
very recent in the consideration of deep of sort of archaeological deep time for sure so if a population of other human had made its way to the solomon islands prior to homo sapien africa expansion events they could feasibly still be existing there and you can also feasibly imagine a world where due to limited but continued interaction with homo sapiens living on the coast this other human species can interbreed and produce viable offspring with homo sapiens as we saw with homo sapiens and neanderthals in earlier events right. so this is that is the conclusion of my lecture uh, i'll now take questions and uh, automatically i'm thinking like you know the, the the descendants of the of the islanders like kind of like ishmael's story a little bit right like even the exactly Eskimo, which is which is mm. so cool i mean it's 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 especially interesting too, obviously going back to just the size of the, the size of the islands, because this is vastly different than say something like the Almas in Siberia, where it's this mm. massive, you know, expansive taiga, whatever. Obviously, much more difficult to live and survive in in different ways, being harsh, not hot, mm. but it's different. It's like this is like they're hiding in these caves is kind of the idea, I guess. Mm. Uh, what do you, what mm. do you have to think about has say about that, Amber? Well, it's so funny because when I was doing initial, my own initial just research foray into the basic history of the Solomon Islands, its inhabitants and things like that, I was looking at, you know, basic encyclopedias like Britannica and their their timelines wow. are hilariously uh, conservative where they're saying basically these islands were, um, they were populated around 2000 BCE. <laughs> was their uh, oh, <laughs> brutal. Oh, no. Like, oh, brutal. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> Uh, but then uh, just speaking to further back in their own origin stories and the words of these locals and how in their minds they came from the islands, the centers of the islands mm. themselves versus having this uh, this migrational sort of origin story that to me speaks to something that is way further, like more so in according to what the timeline that you just spoke to. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm. That's my initial thoughts, though. Like, obviously, they're emerging this, from the center. They were there for I think that's tens absolutely of thousands of years. And that's so cool. Just it, the idea, yeah. That it's almost like. Sorry, go on, Nick. It's, no, I was just gonna say it's like it's like it's like their their personal mythology is almost unwittingly corroborated with the idea of there having been a pre-Homo sapien population living in the centers, and the idea that they came from the centers is a combination of Homo sapien arrivals on the islands about forty thousand years ago, combined with this other Homo population living in the interiors, descended from potentially Erectus. Uh, or it could be from any of the other Homo sapien groups. Uh, Fifty thousand of oh, sapiens. Nope, Homo groups. I'm sorry, mm. Homo groups. Sapiens are us. Nothing else is sapiens. Because yeah. of fifty thousand years ago, there were at least six different species of human living across the world, and that's not all that long ago. And it's only thanks to possibly one of the largest acts of genocide that humans are the only species of humans left that homo sapiens are all that's left of the human species mm -hmm. because you don't get that with other animals you get different species of gazelle and bears it is an aberration that human homo sapiens are the only ones of the genus homo but they were not historically but wherever sapiens arrived other species would go extinct or vanish or move out shortly afterwards but just because that happens so often, that doesn't mean that was the only thing that ever resulted from human interactions with a preceding human species. Right. Mm -hmm. and maybe the Solomon Islands are different. 
and and they i mean even you said they are already in a lot of ways like unrelated to what we're talking about but just in terms of their the waters around them and and stuff like that like it's a pretty unique little end of mm. that line stretching all the way over to you know into indonesia and whatever right it's yeah it, and the kakamora especially are fascinating to me the idea if we if we can come back from like okay maybe things weren't 10 to 15 feet tall these are exaggerated stories but maybe there is there is something in the jungles that are much more like the kakamora and are these things connected to like you've brought up this whole li- the lineage and the whole the story of, of ancient humans that would end up being smaller in stature like homo floresiensis mm-hmm. that would look a lot like the kakamora that would be slightly smaller in stature but would have had the ability to interbreed tens of thousands of years ago with other early slightly different human populations on the island that sort of seems to be adding up to me a little bit i mean even the yeah. people on on um North Sentinel Island. I keep coming back to that because it's just a reference point I'm familiar with. But you know, it's a group that's been completely isolated for forty thousand years, and they're extremely small in stature. They're not tall people, uh, you know. So that that at least in terms of like aesthetics matches up a little bit for something that's like hiding in the jungle for forty thousand years. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. It, it's it's providing more evidence from other islands of a continuing theme of a potential relic species or species. I mean, I think we need to go back. Uh, well, back. You need to go back and bring us with you. That's for sure. Because I want to go yes, to the, yes. uh, I want to find some of these caves and do a little bit of I'd exploring. love to go into these caves. Uh, Apparently, these caves are, are full of giant stone tools as well. Um, but again, the only photos I saw of these stone tools were not photos from the Solomon Islands, but were just photos of prehistoric stone tools. So right. again, it's all anecdotal. All the best parts of these stories are anecdotal. So I think we need to go back and and make sense of it a little bit more. Totally. I mean, even obviously the idea of the, the gun laws changing in and of itself is anecdotal, but it's direct. It makes a lot of sense. Mm. It's like, okay, this is, yes. this is strange. Like there's something that's like a one mm. plus one that's adding up here. Why would they say it? Why would they phrase it this way? Why would they say it this way? It doesn't sound legendary. It doesn't sound like a myth. No, no. Um, and it sounds like a very weird thing to say about a creature that's just a cautionary tale. Right. If it's a cautionary tale monster, then... Why did their numbers decline when hunting with guns was more prevalent? That doesn't really absolutely. And I don't think I actually I don't think we mentioned it too. The idea of the the giants being shot at by the Japanese soldiers and the bullets not having any effect on them, whereas obviously the Kakamura is the opposite. Mm. They're much more of a flesh and blood entity, if you will, not this Mm. monstrous mythological thing that can't be brought down with bullets, as you kind of phrased it in your article. It's like just classic story, right? Like it can't be brought down. Yeah. Um, just, just, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It wouldn't be a monster if you could just kill it with a gun, but Kakamori, you can apparently, uh, I do feel with the giants, if the giants say are the adults of a species of hominin or hominid. And if they did encounter the Japanese, and you shot it at them in the dark and you weren't entirely sure if your bullets were landing or not when you but you saw these big hairy things that really gave you a fright when you're later telling that story you will say and my bullets had no effect on them rather than i missed a bunch because i was scared and it was dark (laughs) so i really i feel like i think a little bit of leeway could be given with the the idea that giants can't be killed i think giants can be killed in fact i believe solomon islanders have gone to war at certain times with local giant populations and then also they had in fact there was one story which i don't mention in my article but it did pop up where there was an ongoing conflict between giants and a local village and in the end they actually had a priest arbitrate a peace treaty between the two 
warring factions. Uh, so that actually is an example of the fact that they actually do fight each other. And as I mentioned in the article, apparently you have meeting houses in isolated parts of the Solomon Islands where the support structures of the house are actually made out of the bones of giants. And many Solomon Islanders claim to have, when they were younger, seen graveyards with gigantic skeletons in them as well. So Interesting. That, that it, would be it the sound- we need, the bones, some giant bones. Oh, it would be. The giant bones. Yeah, it's, it's always a little bit of a wonder, though. When it's like, how, how big are they really? I mean, the Kakamora, I think, I think if there is something out there, we'll be leaning more towards them being Kakamora, mm-hmm. whose size is inflated through storytelling. The largest giants are probably no larger than humans. Although, to be honest, Homo erectus was larger, um, Neanderthals too, were larger than humans. So if this is a descendant of another human group, then they could very well be larger not 15 feet larger but they could be larger yeah 15 feet might be might be pushing a little bit i mean i think i think we're kind of coming down to the end here as far as questions and 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 kind of going through the story but i i i know i had one thing i wanted to finish off with but amber did you have any final questions or thoughts or anything oh gosh i'm still just kind of like ruminating over everything i know right um, yeah, no, go ahead first. Sure, I mean, obviously, okay, not obviously. I mean, it's into the portal. We go pretty crazy on this show. I uh, seem to <laughs> lean towards lots of um, things that are very difficult to corroborate, such as, like, whatever interdimensional type things and stuff like that, because I want to believe. I'm Fox Mulder. I want to believe. Uh, but I, I couldn't finish this off without coming back to the Hollow Earth ideas, because I know that people will be asking about that uh, when we release this. So I just wanted to I, I just wanted to float that out to you because it is so fascinating the idea of like how deep or how far these limestone tunnels could go and what could actually be hiding in them potentially. And uh, you well, know, I, I didn't look into anything like how deep the Solomon Sea is or like the the distance between islands and stuff. But it almost struck me as like, what if there's ways to connect the islands uh, besides the waterways and stuff? Right? You read my mind. Is that what you're going to say? <laughs> well, okay. 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 <laughs> well, you, you'll be very, you'll both be very pleased to hear that that Malatia and Guadalcanal, which both sport the most Kakamora and giant sightings, are both the nearest islands to each other. And also they both have extensive limestone karstic systems and there is a common belief that the tunnels do connect under the sea between the two islands. Interesting. (laughs) No geological evidence, however, but there is a common understanding that the tunnels do connect. Very, very cool. As far as uh, Jules Verne and Hollow Earth, I can't can't, uh, tell you one way or the other, uh, having not looked into that myself. You know, and, and us too, really. We just like to bring it up because uh, everyone always brings it up with us. But the fact that there's tunnels in and of itself is just enough of a tidbit for people to just go down the rabbit hole. So when we get a chance to go to the Solomon Islands together, we can, uh, we'll send a drone down somewhere or something cool. Oh, well, we'll see how far down we can go. That sounds like fun. <laughs> so, uh. before, I mean, before before we, uh, we, we end things off here, Nick, like, uh, just... Is there any final thoughts you had to say on the Giants and like let people know where they can find you, where they can find your work? I know you do some really cool stuff with uh, your artwork on Public and all that stuff. We're going to share your links in our show notes for, for, this, uh, for this interview. But I mean, t- tell all the listeners about what you do and where they can find you. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Um, so the best way to find me is through Instagram because I'm on that more than any other social media app. So on, on Instagram, I am... Nick Swift Diggs, that is N-I-K-S-W-I-F-T-D-I-G-S. Uh, Nick spelled the German way. I'm also on Twitter. I'm at Nick and Daniel, N-I-K-A-N-D-D. 
D-A-N-I-E-L. My friend Daniel made that for me when I was about 17, and that has been my Twitter account ever since. <laughs> awesome. Uh, you can also, uh, I have a website that I have not updated since I went to Colin Bangara, but it was the website I made to discuss my research on Colin Bangara, and that is Colin Bangara Forgotten Fortress, um, dot com. Awesome. Uh, and if you want to reach out to me with any questions or queries, you can actually contact me on Colin Bangara Forgotten Fortress at gmail.com. So that's very wordy, but we can put that into the description under, underneath. If you would like to buy my art uh you can always find me on t public where i am nick swift draws that is n-i-k-s-w-i-f-t-d-r-a-w-s where i do archaeology paleontology and cryptozoology art and i put it on t-shirts that's awesome amazing i think everyone's gonna really love that we'll definitely yeah, share that we're gonna have it's... to pick up a couple shirts oh yeah absolutely <laughs> oh god guys absolutely. thank you well man uh, so lovely i mean and i i know that you are the, the rational mind we like to bring rational minds on the show uh, but I do appreciate the fact that you want to believe in the giants. Uh, oh, yeah. You want to believe in things that are that are undiscovered because that's really refreshing. Uh, it's just refreshing. It's refresh, refreshing perspective oh. from academia. It really is, especially from what, you, uh, what you're talking about right off the top of this uh, discussion here and your, your old professor there that's like, oh, no, this is supposed to be a very exclusive club. It's right. not for just anybody. <laughs> not everyone can study and enjoy these things. No, no, no. Like, what? Yeah. Uh, where's your phd <laughs> so actually on on that note something i always think is really important to bear in mind is that literally everything we know now we at some point did not know and archaeology is a science and science is the act of learning more it is not the act of working with what we already know and refusing to expand it. So I always find it a weird arrogance of humans to sort of say, oh, no, there couldn't possibly be eight men on the Solomon Islands. Or, there couldn't possibly be prehistoric marine reptiles in the world's oceans um, or anything like that. I mean, I always think it's, it's such a... It's such a weird opinion because every civilization in Earth's history has thought they know the most and anything else they can't explain is fiction and the supernatural. Yeah. Every single civilization dating back to the earliest sedentary groups thought they knew everything and what they couldn't explain wasn't real. And we are always learning more. So I do find it really important to remember that even if something is inexplicable, it doesn't mean it isn't real. Absolutely. And that's that that's just that's the best possible. That's my powerful final ending. Yes, that was that. That is, we couldn't possibly end it on a better th- note than that. So, Nick, thank you so much for joining us on the show. We can't wait to have you on again. Oh, We're yeah. definitely going to make this happen. Guys, as soon please, as possible. I would love that. This is, oh, back absolutely. <laughs> this and, has been so much fun, dude. I'm glad you had a good time, and uh, yeah, keep well, and we'll talk to you soon. Well, that was incredible. So much fun. Pretty enlightening. Totally. And yeah. I think we're going to the Solomon Islands. I'm pretty sure we are. Let's pack our bags. <laughs> and, like, uh, actually. <laughs> like, seriously, no, we're going to make that happen mm-hmm. and uh, make sure that you guys listening are in- involved in some way. I mean, obviously, you're listening into the portal, but uh, we'll keep you posted on that because yep. I am pretty excited about the prospect of searching for giants on the yeah. Solomons. Some people go to Mexico. Some people go to Europe. We go to the Solomons. <laughs> yes. So much to talk about after that uh, interview, after that chat with Nick. So many theories. My mind is reeling. But before we do, we wanted to take a short break for our sponsor, BetterHelp. We here at Into the Portal know that there are many out there who suffer from thoughts and feelings that interfere with overall happiness and well-being. I'd say that's especially true in these strange times we find ourselves in most recently here in Canada and around the world. 
BetterHelp is there for you with licensed professional counselors who are available remotely in a safe and private online environment. Yeah, totally. It's amazing how modern technology can enable us to get the help we need on our own time and through your own preferred methods of contact, including secure video or phone sessions, plus online chat and text messaging with your therapist too. What's really great is how BetterHelp is available worldwide. Anything you share with your specially matched therapist is completely confidential, and you can change counselors at any time for no additional fee. BetterHelp has licensed professionals who are specialized in everything from depression, anxiety, family conflicts, and many other areas that may not be locally available to you. And best of all, it's truly affordable. And all Into the Portal listeners get 10% off your first month using discount code PORTAL. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com portal. That's P-O-R-T-A-L. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that can make a difference in your life. That's betterhelp.com portal using discount code portal. P-O-R-T-A-L. All right, and we are back. Holy moly. So what do we get into first? Yeah, here? where do we start? Um, I have so many thoughts and so many questions still. I and I want to just get on a plane and go. I but know. I want to go now. Do, but yes. One of the most interesting things regarding these giants is the habitat. Yes. So Nick touched on a couple of things that I thought was interesting. Obviously, we have these cave networks that he alluded to that may or may not even stretch between islands. That's yes. absolutely fascinating. And again, sort of bleeds into that uh, Skull Island, or sorry, Kong Skull Island, oh, yeah. sort of like Hollow Earth sort absolutely. of thing going on there. Um, also, the idea of the Abalolo trees too being a possible habitat. What are your thoughts on those, though? Like, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because we talked about a little bit more of a less crazy woo-woo side of things with it being, you know, the Kakamora, these smaller versions and the idea of potentially an undiscovered species of orangutan, mm-hmm. which is really interesting because obviously that's, crypto, that's cryptozoology as well. So we have him mentioning these possible locations of the caves and also these abalolo trees that was mentioned by his local connection, right, Eshmiel? Right. And what are your thoughts on all that? Well, I found it interesting that he said that he couldn't really spot any trees like that from the where he was specifically, but then mm-hmm. also, you know, didn't didn't obviously traverse everywhere on the islands. And even though these islands are so small, like we've said, there's obviously these really remote pockets. So I think maybe yeah, that's interesting. The idea of something dwelling in a tree like that, that leans a little bit more towards the idea of like undiscovered species of orangutan or maybe maybe still something kind of like the Kakamora or the Orang Pendek type of small human type thing. But I like to think, I mean, for me, at least in terms of going to search for something, we might find a tree like that and that'd be great. And then we can talk about that. But I would like to investigate investigate the caves Mm -hmm. because that's where evidence might might actually be. Like stone tools that are massive or maybe actually venturing into one of these cave systems. Bones, perhaps. Massive bones, exactly. Yeah. The one thing I would say, too, as far as, like, you know, possible evidence and things like that, like, in these caves or in the surrounds near them, because obviously we're dealing with an area with a lot of rainfall and uh, a lot of moisture, so there's a lot of potential to collect, perhaps, footprints or things like that. So that would be something I would really be keen on. Right. I'm trying to picture how difficult it is to really move through this terrain because Mm -hmm. 
in my mind, like, you know, like Nikki mentioned, he's like, you know, the vegetation alone, like, you know, you can, it, it can be fatal, obviously, if you don't have things like antibiotics and, or right. like, even like, you know, a way to clean a wound, like, say, if you have these razor sharp leaves that are cutting into you and all that <laughs> stuff. In my head, I'm thinking like, man, like, because I'm a pretty small person, I can get in and out of things. And like, I used to love tree climbing and, and just rummaging through the forest and things like that when I was young. Yeah. And so in my head, I'm like, I'm curious how far I would be able to get. Right. Without, like, because even I'm thinking in my head, like, oh, Lord, like, what if you, like, ducked under something and went under um, what you thought was, like, you know, like, an okay way to go through and then you end up getting, like, a razor-sharp leaf, like, cut you on the neck and then your jugular's, like, <laughs> bleeding and then what? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm just picturing all these different well, scenarios. there's definitely treacherous uh, dangers in the jungles. But Why you are essentially Kakamora-sized, so I think right? you'd be able, you would be able to fit if we are going with the smaller <laughs> stature of, of things and that, that maybe this is blown up of proportion that they're not actually giants but mm. smaller cryptids that have been blown you know yeah blown out of proportion seen as larger by potentially the japanese seen as larger by the locals or what have you or but maybe there were actual larger ones maybe yeah. there were and i want to come back to that because yeah. the idea of the cave systems i love how nick got into the whole history of humans out of Africa and this whole trek towards the Solomons and a potential land bridge that may or may not have been there during the Ice Age or whatever, right? It's absolutely fascinating because then when we take that and we put it beside the legends of the Solomon Islanders thinking that their ancestors originated from inside the islands, from the center of the islands, mm -hmm. it makes me almost think that ancient something ancient went there, ancient peoples went there cavemen existed that's like the classic stereotype of like neanderthal right living in caves yeah and then we have this still very ancient history of an exodus from the caves and then to the outer to, to an evolution to doing other things besides living mm -hmm. in caves and maybe that is the source of the the idea of giants and yeah. ishmael talking about his great 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 grandfather being one of these giants possibly a relic human mm -hmm. that is all absolutely fascinating you know that's a great point you bring up because i'm picturing now because nick extended that timeline of human migration significantly right providing at least was it two or three windows of potential human migrations where mm -hmm. they could have ended up in this area and actually that's a great point you make because obviously periods of glaciation have occurred like numerous times in human history and i would have to go back and look at the numbers just to get my timeline straight but i'm thinking that makes sense as far as like a, a people's origin stories of coming out of the caves because perhaps they were holed up in there during an ice age that happened after Maybe. they had migrated from a previous ice age. Maybe. And they were holing up in there until the, the, everything got warmed and thawed again and then boom, there you go. And, and that's how they start to spread out from the safety of these caves Absolutely. into the surrounding jungles. That makes a lot of sense. And obviously this is all very hypothetical, but holy moly right like the yeah. possibilities for that like are there just thinking about the potential of that and, and just picturing that like to be a fly on the wall in the ancient past and see like how that actually went went down is so mm. interesting to think because there is quite a bit of history right there's so many tools i think we should get into the tools <clears throat> and these supposed weapons that ishmael brought up he has his own relic from his family but Absolutely. the idea that the history goes so far and that they're finding stone age tools in these caves perhaps not of giant size like nick alluded to like you know sometimes there's exaggeration but mm -hmm. it does speak to a very long history of people being there absolutely or but people that maybe not aren't even homo sapiens maybe not let's i think that's a perfect segue let's get into that because obviously part of the story of these j attacks on the japanese were that these creatures were wielding immense weapons these massive stone clubs brandishing 
you know, cr crude weapons you would expect from when we're picturing relic humans. Mm -hmm. And Nick shared a photo with us of the of the stone club that Ishmael had from his ancestor. And it was really interesting. There was it was tough to gauge perspective. It was leaned up against the wall, as yeah. he described, which did show it was obviously very large. It was large. You do have the size uh, comparison with that cord, that like cable that was there. So yeah. I would say it's probably about the size of a human head. Maybe. Yeah, I, I, I have honestly thought maybe even a little bigger than that, like a little bit like double the size of a football, maybe. Man, it's got to be bigger than that, though. And we're right? only seeing it from one angle, right? So we don't know how the actual depth of it. And you know? and also, it's like we we were talking about this before recording as well. Is like, is this just the top of a club? Like, it looks. Yeah. It, it's got to be bigger than that. It's got to be bigger than a human head. Like, that's like the size of a man. Yeah, you like have massive hands. Obviously, I'm thinking. I'm. It's more like the size of a human torso is like, what I looked like to me. Oh, really? I didn't think it was that big, but. Maybe we should post it in our Facebook group and people can... Can speculate yeah, on we'll it. Yeah, we'll get Nick's permission before we do that, but... Of, of course, and we... Yeah, no, for sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, but it is interesting, though, because obviously there's comparable, I guess, hairy hominids that also use tools, so we're also said to, like, use weapons against people. And I keep coming back to Pe Orang Pendek, but it's right. something we've covered on the show. Mm -hmm. And the locals there, you know, claimed that they're... Obviously, it was stealing from farms and stuff, but also would have like weapons like spears and or other oh, tools and things that yeah. it would use to and display intimidation tactics like the tree branch snapping exactly. and things like that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So obviously Nick got into a discussion of the smaller variation, the Kakamura, which I've already mentioned here. And I think maybe that's where I'm leaning towards a little bit. The idea of of a relic hominid species living in the cave systems, but there being some sort of a completely separate evolution devolution however you want to describe whatever where there is an offshoot that has been kept completely away that is now seen as the kakamora and the view of the giants was a misinterpretation mm -hmm. standing above them you know attacking in large groups like the sound of the shrieking makes you feel like it's something bigger or something like that mm -hmm. and you're just thinking the size of these giants has just been exaggerated over time that's one i mean that's just one way to think of it p purely in a cryptozoological sense because well, i think the idea of the kakamora makes sense to me the, yeah the kakamora well the, let's get into the, a little bit more what nick had to say because he basically said you can't have two species living in a uh environmental niche and have them both existing, right? So we're talking about one species. And I think he made a lot of good points in, in regards to supporting that argument. Yes. And I think perhaps you can get into, um, obviously between sexes even, you can have differentiation of size that's quite noticeable, right? Or perhaps, like he said, these could be juveniles. These could be younger ones. And of course, like that 10 to 15 feet, that could be a gross exaggeration, right? Simply yeah. because of perhaps the witness was ambushed from above you know right. what i mean so maybe the size is just and of course like nick said right you're not going to describe something that absolutely terrified you as being like yeah. something that was up to your waist or yes. something or you know what i mean also i made this I, we were talking about this as well and we mentioned like you know comparisons to sasquatch or like larger bipedal hominids in other places in the world and it makes sense to me that there would be smaller versions of this in smaller tropical environments right you're like a seven foot mm -hmm. tall plus thick hairy thing living in the pacific northwest that makes sense to survive but you're on a tiny little island 
Like there's nothing else large on these islands. I mean, Nick talked about that too. There's not a lot of things for even people to eat, Mm -hmm. like the the headhunters back in the day. There's fish on the coast, right? And then in the interiors, there's lizards, there's snakes, there's I think maybe like armadillo or something. There's small things, but there's nothing large there because it's a small island. Exactly. It just makes sense. If you had something that was roaming around at 15 feet, like, you know, you'd have some more evidence of it existing beyond just uh, a few anecdotal accounts. Perhaps, but he did also make the point of saying that essentially, even though it's small, it's extremely remote. You it, you cannot really, you cannot easily get to so many places and there's definitely nooks and, and crannies people don't go to or have not been. Exactly, or haven't been to in hundreds of years because I always go back to the, the pre-Christian, pre-missionary, pre-European whatever influence on these islanders and how they must have been existing in their quote-unquote headhunting times. Like yes. they refer to them, not like how I'm referring, but... But the idea that in the past, right, they lived further inland and it was for their own protection from other islanders and ambushes. So they were closer to perhaps the places that these unknown entities were residing themselves. And if they are if they are slightly bifurcated, like how Nick was saying, evolutionary wise, so they've gone down different paths a little right. bit, but they're not far enough down those paths that they're not irrecognizable or irrefutably like you know you can't mate kind of thing so i'm thinking pre in the headhunting periods right pre-christian era they were a lot closer to that and then that's where you get the things like ishmael's great 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 like his ancestor i'm not sure how many greats are in there right but you know that's where you get things like that now today it's so much more separated right because all of these islanders have moved to the coast out of their own convenience and they don't need to go into the they don't need the protection of the jungle anymore so they're not there so they've been further separated from perhaps their own ancient origins you know what i mean like there's so many cool ways that you can think about this and also the idea is now that you wouldn't you can't really be protected by the jungle because the things that are in there are not safe ah. because they believe that these creatures that these things are in there whether mm-hmm. they're their ancestors or not it's almost like because we talked about the idea of more of a cautionary tale type thing yeah, yeah, like the bunyip or like whatever don't go into the swamp because there's something big and scary in there just like the jungle and i think that kind of makes sense mm-hmm. but coming back to the idea of comparing the kakamora to something much much larger maybe if we're going a little more woo woo in a paranormal sense or whatever you want to call it or even just going back to a ancient prehistory even there's evidence on other pacific islands and i'm air quoting evidence here because Mm -hmm. you can take it as you will but there's mythology there's legends there's stories that are ubiquitous across these islands uh in fiji in american samoa in a lot of different places of massive humanoids and there's even an alleged gigantic footprint that was discovered in samoa i have an image that i'll share on facebook Mm -hmm. and uh, and stuff like that i'm sure it's been disproven by many and believed by by many as well Mm -hmm. there's various videos on youtube on different places i think i the one i watched uh, earlier was samoa as well where there's you know an an alleged uh, giant grave a burial that extends several meet you know it's it's you know it's like it's around 15 feet like it would be a massive Uh, humanoid did anyone dig it up and excavate it to see? No, but that's what the locals say it is. And uh, I find that to be to be really interesting because mm-hmm. it's like there is this hum- humans keep these memories, right? Like through oral tradition, through thousands and thousands of years. And yes, it could be linked to relic hominids and an exodus from cave systems. It could also be something we're not even really sure of. And if you want to get into the whole Smithsonian hiding giant bones uh, controversy, <laughs> like there's a lot of people that believe that's a thing and that 
there actually is an alternate timeline of human history possibly or just think you know things in the cracks and crevices that people mm-hmm. don't want to admit to we talked about that a little bit I with Nick, too. mess up that nice linear timeline. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's an important point to make. <laughs> did you have any other thoughts on the, I, all this? I, I did. Yeah. I, I had one more thing I wanted to point out because this is obviously something, I, you know, it's into the portal. I think everybody would want there to be something paranormal tied to this, right? Like besides cryptozoological, for, for some of our listeners anyway. And we got into a little bit of the hollow earth type stuff with, mm. uh, with, with Nick. Not to the necessarily the extent of like hollow earth with a sun and, and that whole chestnut, mm, right? Yeah. But like the idea of there being caverns or, or, or hiding places within the earth. And as I look deeper into this a little bit, pun intended, I guess, you know, like I just said, there's similar legends from places around the world for one, but definitely around the Pacific. And I came across a few different references to the idea of not only that these cave systems in the Solomons might be connected, but that there's this idea of underground cities. How how you want to picture that, it's like some people might go straight to like advanced Atlantis. It's mm-hmm. like, no, I'm not thinking, I'm thinking Flying like cars. carved into the rock type stuff like you find in, in the Northwest in America where there's like remnants of like ancient civilizations carved into oh, the, that type of vibe. Oh, isn't there some of that in Turkey too? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Where I'm thinking like that is an interesting prospect like maybe these ancient humans weren't just cavemen but they were perhaps even more advanced and that not advanced to the point of like atlanteans flying around on uh, you know whatever but advanced re- enough to have architecture exactly have, like, like i'm reminded you know. of andrew collins who's an author and you know whatever paranormal alternate history researcher and stuff and he's written about the denisovans and discoveries in siberia and the idea of perhaps that some of the things found in caves there exhibited much higher technology perhaps even things like high-speed drilling and things like that mm, on some of their right, yeah. their jewelry and things like that. Anachronistic technology. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So that sort of makes me think about this. It's like maybe the the giants, yeah, it's it's a, it's fun to think about that from a hollow earth type perspective that uh, maybe we could find something in these All caves. right there, Andrew, where's your tinfoil hat? <laughs> oh, come on. That's not that no. tinfoil hat. Honestly, for me, like if we're getting into kind of more of like our final sort of thoughts and what we thought was the most fascinating about all of this was for me I just like the idea of just trying to not explode it but just to just to deconstruct the notion of a linear time frame of evolution and the idea that this wasn't clean there were so many different like subgroups of what we know of as humans like you know what I mean like quote unquote that were just like roaming around taking each other it was almost like it reminds me of kind of like um oh my gosh Game of Thrones a little bit like in the idea of like these different realms and lands and like literally they are different genetically and I just thought that was so fascinating the way he was Mm -hmm. describing how at different points the divergences and convergences align to such that they could see themselves in each other and then at other points they couldn't and they just saw other you know what i mean and like where where that line is is just so ambiguous to me you know like absolutely like i just i wish i could have that experience of staring at something that's kind of like us but not and you do get that already with apes right and with chimpanzees and with uh, especially with uh orang um Oh my gosh, with orangutans, <laughs> which literally means man orang of, utang. essentially just <laughs> yeah. means like it's man like of the man, forest. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. And it's like for me, I just I treasure that thought of like the little pockets of things that might just be out there because yeah. people either a just can't be bothered to go there, like 
places like this where the terrain is just so incredibly hard mm -hmm. to traverse or they just just dismiss it outright yeah. because it's not a part of our known knowledge canon right anyways that was the most important or not important that was the most interesting thing i feel like i took away from this and i just can't wait to get to the solomons because you can do it and we're doing it oh so. it's happening absolutely i yeah. guess i would just close off with i i def i mean obviously we wouldn't be planning a trip if we didn't think that there was something strange going on and that there is a basis to these legends and and that there's there's something there to be found and i'm really yeah. looking forward to it and even just the history alone uncovering that being nick's right hand man just being the you know just the laborers in the dirt like we're already used to here <laughs> the Okanagan, but That's just true. doing it for a much greater purpose yeah mm -hmm. and you know what i think we might even <clears throat> we might even end up doing a small follow-up follow-up to this because there's just so so many rabbit holes and obviously other giant stories across the pacific islands so we might come back to it but uh mm -hmm. yeah i want to believe in giants in the in the interior so we but we also want to hear what you guys have to think yeah so comment uh, comment on this episode uh, comment on facebook come follow us on there join our facebook group if you haven't mm -hmm. uh, the forum on there we're always posting articles and chatting with people it's super fun yeah. follow us on instagram at into the portal podcast and follow the network account at strange pods on oh. uh, instagram as well and if you're curious to learn more about nick make sure you uh, hit up him on his socials hey that he listed at the end of the interview so yes go back and re-listen to that if you we're going to include a couple <laughs> of links below as well that you can uh, you can click to go find nick's stuff oh and, true uh, yeah actually uh, we might as well just sort of lose say now that uh, Nick is uh, has joined us on the Straight Up Strange Network mm -hmm. so stay tuned for some uh, interesting things we're planning uh, with Nick in the future this isn't the only time you're going to be hearing him on this show and on other shows as well so stay tuned for that and un uh, until next time as always thank you so much for listening to Into the Portal your gateway to the bizarre Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.